my definition of a little bit is usually different than the people listening's definition of a little bit. And but that's the way it goes. So, all right, <clears throat> let me get my mind focused here for just a little bit, if you would. Um, you know, compromise is probably the one of the greatest destroyers of Christians and the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Compromise. Compromise. It's destroyed some of the greatest churches over the last two millennia. You can go all the way back and see the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Corinth, when he wrote to the church at Galatia. Can I tell you, the church at Rome went somewhere. Something happened somewhere. And then you see later Catholicism springing up. You see some of the beginnings of Gnosticism in the church at Galatia. I mean, I'm just telling you tonight that compromise has destroyed a lot of good churches. And some of you may have been a part of those churches that even in your time era that are even gone today. Or you know about them that were once strong churches and they are gone today. They, they started strong. They stood on the Bible alone and they made their stand and said, we preach <clears throat> only, only Christ, and we preach the Bible, we preach this book, and, and, and they may, may have stood on what Bible to preach. I'm talking about a King James Bible. And they made all of these great stands, and maybe they made a good biblical stands against worldliness and carnality, and they were protective of what they allowed in their lives and allowed into the church. They spent their time just preaching the gospel and reaching their community for Christ. And, and what happened because of that, the church began to grow into this vibrant, active body that just uh, that grew and excelled in the community. It was well known in the community. Even the, 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 the detractors had to acknowledge that that is just a vibrant place there. And um, it was just, there were great ministries. And you know of some of those churches, right? Can I, can I remind you that Highland Park Baptist Church is no longer exists. They moved it to the other side of, of Chattanooga. And now I think it's called something view chapel or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's in all practical purposes, it's gone. The Tennessee Temple the College, it's gone. Um, the, the church that was over in Cincinnati, uh, Landmark Baptist Church, is gone pretty much. It is a rock and roll modern uh, progressive church i saw a photo of the pastor and his uh, beautiful beautiful gray hair i'm all for that all right it's coming but i'm all for that and uh this beautiful long ponytail will go match it is too you know the untucked shirt and all of this stuff this this was john rollins church not that i was a big fan of but i'm just telling you things have changed and people go different ways and churches come a come and they go away they were strong but in what happens usually it's just little changes, right? It's just small little things, maybe a little change in the music department. And they said, well, I, I know that that's a little more heavily syncopated than probably is good, but it's just this one. It doesn't, it's not a big deal. I, I know this is a song that, you know, I was at a church once and somebody sang a song and I was listening. I'm like, that's a worldly song. I mean, it's just, a, it sounded great. I'm like, it has nothing to do with anything uh, biblical, biblical as I just, I was shocked. 
And uh, it was a great church, don't get me wrong, but just little stuff like that, little stuff like that. It, it, uh, it was allowed to get in. Somebody came along and said, let's just tweak this. Let's do this. Let's become more accessible and reachable to the community. Let's just, uh, let's just change our, our standards of holiness. Let's just change how we live our life a little bit. I mean, good grief. We don't want to be weirdos, right? We don't want to be strange to culture. We don't want to look like a bunch of Pentecostals, you know, right? And it's like... You know, and they have all of these things that they come out and they tell you, if you just change this, you could get more people, right? A little alteration in how you preach. Maybe you shouldn't be so loud. Maybe you shouldn't, and I'm not that loud, but anyway, maybe you should, people think, maybe you shouldn't be so loud and maybe you shouldn't preach so long, right? Maybe you should learn to just kind of tie it up a little bit and get the point more. I mean, I could have been done already if I hadn't just been rambling on right now. But no, they come in and think, why don't you do this and do that and do this and do that. And they're little, little, little things that come in. Things that they, that were supposed to build a ministry that's already growing. Wait a minute. No, no, this will help you, right? This will help you. Things that were opposed to what helped that church grow in the first place. They said, if you just do these little things, well, I tell you, that would really take off. And the people of the church going, I thought we have took off. Right? They're subtle, aren't they? They're subtle little things, right? And before you know it, a vibrant ministry is lifeless and dying. Friend, it happens all the time. It's happening today. At a faster rate. I was doing some looking today at Gallup polls. Do you know since 1937 when Gallup started taking polls uh, for the first 60 years of polling, six, listen, six centuries, six decades, not centuries, six decades, church attendance, church membership in the United States stayed above 70%. Yeah. Do you know what it is now? For the first time, it dropped below 50%. They are including Catholics. They are including Muslims. They are including what they call Protestants. All of them has now in the United States dropped below 50% of church membership and church attendance. Compromise. I know that I know that that's way too easy. I mean, I know there's a little more complexity, but say, hey, wait, if it's the preaching of the gospel that goes out, right, that people have to faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if people are not getting saved somewhere, the gospel hasn't been getting out. Friend, hey, I'm telling you, do you know how many churches in this area went out every week and knocked doors? Do you know when I was in Bible college 30 years ago, door knocking was mandatory it was mandatory, and your pastor had to sign off on it that you went every week. Boy, that's a long, that's far, far away. And here we are wringing our hands that where society is, and where our own little town is, and where our own, uh, our own country is. It's amazing, isn't it? Compromise. Compromise. Let's try this. Let's try that. And one thing that does combat compromise, though, there is a thing that combats compromise, and that is conviction. Conviction. And we're going to see this play out tonight in the book of Esther. We're going to see this play out in the, in the life of a Jew who's living in the Middle Persian Empire. He's actually living in Shushan, the palace, and the main hub of this empire. He was uh, uh, brought there, uh, most likely born here because of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity uh, years prior to that, but there's a man living in this in in this uh, uh, this area who 
lived a life of conviction. We're not even getting into his cousin here. Mordecai and Esther, they're cousins, not aunt, not uncle and niece. They're cousins. And Esther has her own story. We'd love to look at that sometime. But I want to look at the life of Mordecai tonight. I want to show you an area of conviction. Conviction that he lived by. You know, the book opens in Esther of, with Ahasuerus, who is king over, over the Medo-Persian Empire. There's over 127 provinces in this empire. And at some point in, this, in his rule that he uh, had a birthday party for himself, we know this, he and, uh, it had gone on for some days now, and everybody was pretty liquored up and enjoying the party. And at some point he realizes, and he says to one of his men, hey, go get Vashti the queen, tell her to bring the crown and uh, and tell her to get down here. I, I, I want everybody to see this crown. I want everybody to see my wife. And so word got over to Vashti and she said, nope, not coming. Not coming. And she refused to come. She refused to come. Don't read one of these days we'll go through Esther uh, but don't read too much into there what's not in there. Okay. Some, some people have uh, read some other things in there that aren't there. And you can ask me about it later. We don't have time for that tonight. But she refused to come. And it was, it was an embarrassment to the king. I mean, this is the king of the largest empire in the world. And his wife, And if you would understand, right? Some people thought that women were total doormats back then. And I guess not because, I mean, we can see this here. She wasn't too afraid to tell him no. And, uh, but it was a blight on his, on his leadership. It was a blight on his, on his authority. And, and the, his rulers come along and said, hey, if she gets away with this... Uh, I mean, what are all these other women going to do with their wives all over the province, right? So they talked him into doing something about it. Now, notice this. He didn't have Vashti killed. He just put her away from being queen. Now, a lot of, a lot of uh, kings, they could have risen up at any time and said, dead, you're out, right? And uh, find, find another one, right? Henry VIII, right? <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so she's out as, as being queen. The search goes out, going to find a new queen. And you know what happens uh, by the providence of God, it lands on Esther. And she had these great words. And when she said in, in, that it may, maybe it is, he, she said to her cousin, that I have come into a ki- the kingdom for such a time as this. This is what Mordecai, I'm sorry, said to Esther. And what did Esther say when she had to go before the, before the king herself? She said, well, if I perish, I perish. What conviction? What conviction? This is the backdrop for we, when we come into chapter 3. Now, Esther's cousin here, Mordecai, obviously he worked in the palace at Shushan. And he had a position there. And if you look here at chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, And these things did Ahasuerus, I'm sorry, after these things did Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So when we come into this book, we see here, and I call number one, point number one, Satan's tool. Satan's tool. And we are introduced here to Haman. Haman's name, the word Haman means magnificent. It says here that his father was uh, Hamadatha the Agagite. And some people surmise that the Agagites were, uh, were descendants of Agag. Do you remember when Saul was told to go and kill the Amalekites and wipe all of them out? And he went out and he killed a bunch of stuff, but he kept the best of the sheep and he kept the king. And Samuel shows up and, and he said, did you do what I said? He said, yep, did it all. Ma. Right? 
What is the what is the meaning of the bleeding of the sheep? Oh, the people wanted to the people wanted to you know they wanted to sacrifice those under the Lord. Well, God didn't want those, <laughs> right? It's called obedience. God didn't want those. If He wanted them, He would have asked for them. He didn't want them. And where's the king? Well, you know, we saved the king alive. And the Bible says that eventually they brought Agag out, and he and he and he and he says he, he came delicately, and he says, "Is everything okay?" Are we good now? No. You know, there goes his head, you know. And Samuel, Samuel hacks his head off, and like Saul should have done in the first place. But this, watch, this was Agag. Now, some, surmi- some surmise that the, this Haman, the Agagite, is a descendant of Agag. Okay? Agagite. You might pronounce it Agagite. But some think he's, but you know what? We, we don't know that much about Haman. This is all we know is what we see here in the book of Esther. And we know here in chapter two that Haman's been promoted, right? He did, he's done some great stuff. He's given a position above all of the king's princes in, in, uh, in Shushan and in, and in uh, the Middle Persian Empire. And with this promotion came the king's proclamation. Look at this. Verse 2, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So this decree went out when he got his promotion at his job. Part of that promotion was everybody needs to recognize your position right in my kingdom. They're going to bow to you like they bow to me. Could you imagine that? Has anybody ever gotten promoted at their job and the, and the boss said, tell you what, now I want you to go out. All right, everybody. Calls in all the hundred employees or so. Now, right? Now, Bill got promoted. Everybody bow. All right? It'd be like, whatever. I know how that guy works. <laughs> this is just the way it was, right? That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Right? Michael, would you like that? Okay. Good. Haman liked it. Oh, he loved it. He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, loved it. And so uh, here's the king's proclamation that goes out. Everybody's supposed to bow, right? It was a command that was legally binding by the, by the king. Right? Remember Ahasuerus? Yeah. And in verse 2 here, you see Mordecai's protest. Mordecai said, uh-uh, not bowing. Look at verse 2. You see this? But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Now, I want you to focus on these two words here. looks like two of the same words said different ways, but there's two different words here going on. The word bow and the word reverence. The word bow is that outward genuflecting, the bowing down. It is a physical thing that you do. It is, a, it is an action that you do in your body. But the word reverence is signifying the bowing or the bending of the heart. There is an inward reverence, and then it's shown up on the outward reverence. Boy, I could preach on that for a while. Let me tell you something. There are some actions of God's people on the outside that are displaying what's going on on the inside. They have bowed to this world on the inside and it's all over them on the outside. And I don't have time to go into that, but you could probably come up with that that with yourself. But here we have Mordecai. The command of the king has gone out. Haman has this great position above all of the princes of the Middle Persian Empire. And he was told them, you will bow when when, when Haman comes by. But Mordecai would not bow outwardly. Why? Because he refused to bow inwardly. His heart was never going to bow to this. Why is this? 
right? The servants kind of probe the whole issue. They're like, why are you doing this? Look at verse 3. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Why are you doing this? Man, you're going to get yourself killed, man. Right? Unless you're the king's wife, then you're okay. But no, you're going to be in trouble. Look what verse 4. Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him. Daily. No, he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Every time that Haman came by and everybody bowed, Mordecai went. Everybody's down. The one sore thumb standing up, right? The one who just can't get along. Can't you just, can't, you ever heard, can't you just get along? Well, you always got to be going against everybody, right? I like what one preacher said, because everybody's going the wrong way. <laughs> they wasn't going the wrong way. We wouldn't bow heads, right? Mordecai, he, he, would, he, would, he wouldn't bow. Day after day after day after day, these people in the king's palace are saying, just bow. Why aren't you bowing? Look at the end of verse 4. <clears throat> Uh, and, and he hearkened not unto them. I like that. It's kind of, you, know, you know who should have taken a lesson from Mordecai was Samson. Yeah. Delilah came after him day after day after day after day. Finally he goes, fine, fine. Joseph, Potiphar's wife, she, she, she came after him day after day after day. And he said, uh-uh, I'm out of here. I like that. Mordecai, day after day. He said, no, not doing it, not doing it, not doing it. Why? Why not? Why not? Look at this. Uh, and, 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 uh, and they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Well, this just tells you everything you need to know right here. Why isn't he bowing? Well, it's idolatry. I'm not bowing to a man. I bow to a God. I bow to God, hey, uh, Mordecai would say. Somebody the other day said to me, Hey, Reverend. I said, Oh, holy and reverend is he. Not me. Only God is reverend. Yeah. Yeah. Mordecai says, I'm not bound to you. I'm nobody. God, listen, you're a, you're a mortal man. Yeah. It's paganism. So Haman notices it. <laughs> to say the least, the dude's irritated. He likes being bowed to. Yeah. He really likes being taken care of and thought he's really something. Look what he does in verse 5 and 6. Haman is totally put out. Look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Listen, there was nothing left to placate him. Full. Totally full of wrath. He's not happy about this, right? Verse 6, And he thought, to, he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Mordecai, and Haman is so furious that he not only does he want Mordecai dead, but he wants all of his people dead as well. Can I help you with something tonight? When you choose to obey God, oftentimes it will affect those around you too. That's one of the hardest things to do in serving God. If serving God, listen, you know this is true in your own life. If serving God didn't so quickly affect others, you would probably obey a lot quicker. 
But what do we do sometimes? Oh, boy, what about this? And what about this one? Oh, and they're going to do this. And, oh, it might have, you know, well, that's what, right? Remember when, when Paul was called, what, Paul was called, what did he say? He said immediately, he said, I conferred not with flesh and blood. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't go find somebody out to ask. I just obeyed God. That's what we have to do. This is what Mordecai did. He just obeyed God. He wasn't going to bow to this guy. But it, it was going about to affect all of the Jews that were living in the Persian, this Middle Persian Empire. Notice in verses 8 and 9, Haman's plot. We had Satan's tool, which is, which is Haman. Haman is just a tool of Satan. But notice this plot that he comes up with in verse 8. And Haman said unto the king of Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed, among the kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. They keep, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. Now, the, uh, it seems like from the text, we see that Haman never tells them who these people are. He just says there's a certain people. There's just a group of people that they're not going to listen to you. And notice what he does here, um, that he, he tells them that there's people in his kingdom that don't obey him king they don't obey you they don't obey your laws and really there's no profit to them even staying here they're just taking up space and land they don't help you at all actually they have their own laws and they just they don't they don't want anything to do with yours well i i tell you what um that would get a king's attention right absolutely but can i tell you tonight haman doesn't really care about the king he doesn't care about what the, if the king has enemies coming up against him. He doesn't really care about that at all. All he cares about is his own promotion. All that was motivating Haman was his own pride, right, and his own, and his own arrogance and, and his own desire for worship uh, that moved him to pit this or, or to triangulate or to, to, um, to butter up the king in his own ego to get him to go along with this plan. Hey, be careful when the world tries to go after your ego to get you to change. Be careful. Be careful with that. Why? Because they're never for you. They're always for themselves. The Bible says over in Proverbs that um, it, it says the flattering lip, the flattering lip spreadeth out a net. You ever known of those? I, I worked at a place in high school. I didn't know any better except we were taught that you didn't work on a Sunday. And, man, we couldn't even drive a tractor on Sunday. It was miserable. I'd say, hey, Paul, can I go out and tractor? No. I mean, you thought I'd try to kill somebody, you know. I was like, no. I'll just go wander out in the field for hours on end, right? And uh, But uh, I worked at a job in high school, and I, you know, you don't work on Sundays. And uh, this general manager was there and he wanted to get me to work on something. He goes, oh, you know, we just need something. You're so good. We need this and blah, blah, blah. You know, butter up, butter up, butter up, butter up the ego. Right. We really need you here. We really need you here. I probably would have been more afraid of getting killed at home than I was. You know. I said, no, I can't do that. Then all of a sudden I was like, fine. Didn't like you anyway. You know, one of those. Right. Wait a minute. I thought you were, I thought I was really good. You know. I want to be a supervisor. No, you'd be no good at it. Wait a minute, but I thought of you. You know, no, they're just for themselves. What am I saying? Don't fall for it. Just do what God says. All right. And this is this is what Haman is doing to Ahasuerus. He's going after his ego and saying, "Hey, there's a group of people 
that don't care about you, don't care about your laws. They have their own laws and they're going to do their own thing. And the Bible says in verse 10 that the king was persuaded of this. And look what Haman says in verse 9 though. Look at this. And if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. Wow. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasury. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good. Right. So the king was persuaded. How is it that such vagueness could work on the king? It's pretty vague, wasn't it? You think he would have said, okay, well, who are the people? Okay, well, what are their laws? Well, how are these laws, how are they going against us? I mean, but they have their own little, you know, you know, cultural things they do or what? It just seems so vague here that he, why would he do this? Right. Well, you do remember one of the greatest challenges to his authority came from his ex-wife, Vashti. I wonder, you know, it was so public. It was obviously damaging. It was so damaging that it brought, brought, uh, uh, it brought to him an entire people group, you know, to keep the, you know, the, to keep the law. It was so damaging that when Haman brought this up about this people group, maybe it was just like, okay, get rid of them. You know, this is, a, this is a PR thing. He's trying to get some political capital back. Yeah. Possible, I don't know. We don't want to surmise too much. All I know this is that, uh, is that Ahasuer said, yeah, that would be fine. Right. He, he gave him the authority. He gave him the, the, the king's signet, the king's ring. That is authority. It would be a legal seal. That would be the seal of the kingdom. And any document that was sealed with that ring was a, was a legally binding document. He said, here's my ring. Here's my seal. We're going through boxes in here yesterday. And Micah opened up this, uh, this little uh, pouch. And it, this big metal thing came out. And he said, what is this? And I said, ah, that's a seal. Right, and I showed them. It's the corporate seal of. It was the corporate seal of Calvary Baptist Church. They don't even give you corporate seals anymore when you have a corporation. But uh, I showed him how it worked, and he was in awe, and he thought that was cool, right? And uh, because at his ripe old age, he's never seen one of those, right? And uh, and I think I was really discouraged. I went and got to a notary one time recently, and they don't even have a seal anymore. They just stamp it. I'm like, where's the seal? You can you can alter this, right? Well, this king's signet, man, you can't alter it. You can't change that. It was authority. Notice, secondly, he gave them money. This is assistance. Okay? They got the money that they needed for the staffing to carry out the murder and butcher of a whole race of people. He says, here's my authority. Here's my assistance. Thirdly, look at this. They're going to give them some scribes. Verse uh, number 12. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month. And there is written according to all that Haman had commanded and the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province, 127 of them, and to the rulers of every people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. And the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. There's authentication. The lawyers were called to write up the law. 
The law was written according to what Haman wanted, right? But it, 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 but it addressed all of those that were in authority throughout the kingdom. And it was written in the name of the king. It was sealed with the king's signet. And the legal document is tied up, it wrapped up, locked up, tighter in Fort Knox, which is probably empty. But it's secure. Verses 13 through 15, they deliver all of the posts throughout the 127 provinces. A little side note. This edict from the king was written in a numerous amount of languages throughout the 127 provinces. But even though there were copies in other languages, they still had all the authority of the original. And so does our Bible. It's a little tidbit for you. So here they are. It goes out on the 13th day of the first month. It goes into effect the 13th day of the 12th month. They've got 11 months. The Jews have 11 months to prepare to be slaughtered. Wow. Could you imagine that? Yeah. You know, the nightly news or however you get your information. I get the majority of my news from the Babylon Bee because it's many times more accurate than anything else, even though it's a parody satire site. <laughs> uh, could you imagine it coming out? Uh, the president just signed into uh, executive order because it couldn't pass Congress or Senate that uh, all Baptists will be murdered in 11 months. <laughs> right? So the, the clock's ticking now. It's crazy. All of Shushan's perplexed. Look at verse 15. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandment and the decree was given in Shushan the palace and the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city Shushan was perplexed. This was strange to them, man. They're like, this is weird. Haman and the king, yeah, it was great. The rest of the city's like, what does... Right? Pretty weird. Amen. It's out of character for the king. No, this is the same king who, you know, his own ex-wife wouldn't come when he called and he just kind of put her away and went and got him a new one. This is so out of character for him. Now he's going to wipe out an entire people group? You know, God had a man living in a foreign country against his will who drew a line in the sand and said no. And because of this hard line, an entire people group were on the cusp of extinction. Pretty tough call, isn't it? How many believe that at no point did Mordecai go, oh, I probably should have just went ahead and bowed? I don't think he did. It'd be, hey, it'd be pretty, be pretty uh, easy to come to that conclusion. Wow, I didn't know my decision was going to ruin this many people. When I finally surrendered to God to preach, I told the Lord, you can tell my wife. I'm not telling her. <laughs> she was fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. How did this all come about? Conviction. Conviction. How did we get here? Conviction. One guy. One guy. 
in the Middle Persian Empire, a Jew, one Jew, who happened to be placed in Shusha in the palace, said, no, we don't bow. That's idolatry. Why did, I mean, when you think about Mordecai, this wasn't just a bunch of rebellion. He wasn't adverse. Listen, he did, hey, he did not have an aversion to authority. Remember, he had warned the king about an assassination plot before that got forgotten about. I mean, he's not like he's just you know so, some anti-authority figure, and you know, and uh, you know, I'm I'm my own autonomy, and we have no ruler over. He has. He wasn't like that at all. He's done it. Others have done it too. He's not the only one. His cousin Esther's going to do it. Right? This is the Persian Empire, formerly the Babylonian Empire. Right? Do you remember three Hebrew children? Right? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember Daniel in the lion's den? I mean, this is, this is not, uh, out of, you know, not out of character here at all. Almost 200 years before the writing of the book of Esther and the events here in, in Esther, 200 years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar built this huge statue and told everybody when the music plays, you're going to bow down to it. And nope, not three Hebrew children. They said, no, nah, we don't bow. It's idolatry. God told us not to. What was their deal? Well, same as Mordecai. They hated idolatry. Watch. They're going to obey God over the man. I really don't think... I, I think it's possible that Mordecai didn't, have a, didn't even have a problem with Haman, personally. Well, probably, maybe a little bit. Yeah. What am I saying? Mordecai, his problem wasn't authority, friend. His problem was, this was idolatry, and he's going to obey God rather than man. Right? Remember those Ten Commandments? Remember those guys? Yeah. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Remember that one? Thou shalt not bow down to graven images, God told them. Hey, man, it's not personal, buddy. Even though you really hate me, I don't really hate you. Maybe a little bit. But I can't, I can't do what God has told me not to. Conviction. Acts chapter 5, the apostles were preaching and uh, people are getting healed. Uh, they're here they've convened on Solomon's porch and there's some leaders from the synagogue that came out to put them in prison and uh, they eventually get let out. And uh, they, uh, by God, God let them out and God told them, go back to the temple and preach again. And so they do. Leaders found them again. And uh, they said, hey, I thought we told you to knock it off. You remember what Peter said, don't you? He answered and the apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Conviction. Conviction. Remember what it means to bow? You bow inwardly before you bow outwardly. Conviction. Let me make some application. We'll we'll be done. You know what we need today? (laughs) 
more conviction. You know what God's people need? Conviction. No, no, we, we've been... Satan has tools out there all over the place. Well, just do this. Well, this doesn't matter and that doesn't matter. That's not a big deal. I love this one. You, don't, you really think God really cares that much about that one? I, I don't think... I think that's awful petty. I don't think God really cares. Careful. <laughs> Careful. Our churches are in the condition they are today because of, of compromise and a lack of conviction. Just the, just the, just the backbone to say no. We're not going to do that. Or, or the backbone to say yes, we're going to do this. Right? And you see, I know, so you think, you're always so negative. Fine. Yes, say yes. Have backbone to say yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Blendina lived from 162 to 177 A.D. 15 years old. 15 years old. She died during the reign of Marcus Aurelius in the city of Lyon in Asia Minor. She was arrested with other Christians. She was a slave. She was not a Roman citizen. If she was a Roman citizen, she wouldn't have gone through what she did go through. But she had converted to Christianity, right? And if she'd been a Roman citizen, they'd just taken her head off for converting to Roman to, to, to Christianity, I mean. But instead, she, the history said that she withstood so much torture that it was said the perpetrators became tired under her strength. Fifteen. Finally, she was taken to an amphitheater and bound to a stake. Wild animals were let loose, however, they didn't touch her. Days passed, and finally, she was killed by throwing herself in front of a wild steer. Fifteen. Yeah. What kind of conviction do you have? Friends, some people today are just having struggle in obeying God on the simplest stuff. Friends, some people are having trouble just getting to church. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. How many remember Polycarp? He was, a, he was a pastor at Smyrna in Turkey, 160 A.D. Those famous words that he, that he said when they brought him off to be burned at the stake, when the inquisitors, when the, when the, when the not the inquisitor, but when the... Uh, when the people came, the, the, the legal people, the whatever they were, police, came to get Polycarp, they were shocked at how old he was. They had heard about him. They just didn't realize how old he was, 86 years old. He said, before I go, would you give me an hour to pray, please? And they sat, they stood, waited on him for two hours. They're almost ashamed. You know, they couldn't believe they were taking this guy in. But they let him off. And as he was about to be burned at the stake, you know what he said. You remember this. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he was burned at the stake. 86. So much for living out the golden years. How do you do that? Conviction. Conviction. Yeah. Hans Brett was a young baker who was really the only provider in his home but with him and his and his widowed mother he was an anabaptist in antwerp in the netherlands hans was charged with being rebaptized and was sentenced to be burned at the stake let me clarify something there's no such as thing as rebaptism 
There's only one biblical baptism. You either have it or you don't. You're not rebaptized. But anyway, that's a minor issue. No, it's not. It's a major issue. And uh, so he was charged with being rebaptized. And on the day of his execution, on January 4th, 1577, the authorities subjected Hans to the indignity of a tongue screw. The executioner forced Hans to stick out his tongue, and Hans complied since, since it was expressed that, quote, he had not a member on his body, which he was not willing to deliver up to suffering for the name of Christ. And it goes on to say this. Let me read it to you next. The executioner screwed an iron clamp to the tongue and tightened it. And finally, he burned the end of the tongue with a hot iron, making the tongue swell so that it could not be removed from the clamp. And the purpose of the tongue screw was to prevent Hans from witnessing to the bystanders, bystanders as he was led to the stake. Remember Bunyan? Put him in prison and he preached out the windows. While he preached, his hands would be bloodied because they'd be whipping him as he had his hands out trying to... Uh, conviction. When Hans arrived at the stake, the bystanders said this, being clothed, with Christ, with Christian glory. It was evident. He knelt and folded his hands to worship God, but the authorities jerked him to his feet and chained him to the stake. His pastor, Hans de Ries, was in attendance and stood as near to the martyr as he dared. And as the pastor watched, the fire rose up and consumed the body of his friend. And the fire, After the fire cooled, the pastor retrieved from the ashes the only thing that was left of Hans Brett, which was the tongue screw. History goes on to say that that pastor married his widowed mother, Hans's widowed mother, and that they kept that tongue screw and it had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. The only, less, the only thing left of Hans who would, who would not bow. Conviction. I don't think we have much today. I know. This morning was so much better. Yeah. I'm just, I, hey, I look at my own life. I look at people around us. I thank, I, I thank God when, if this day ever came for us, His grace would be sufficient. And we'd probably, Lord willing, we'd do the same thing. His, His grace comes when we need it. Thank, thank the Lord. Yeah. Conviction. Let me ask you tonight, are you bowing to anyone or anything that you shouldn't be bowing to? What I think we should all ask God for tonight, ask God to restore to us a backbone of conviction. I think that'd be a good thing. Because I'm going to tell you, I don't know the future, but sometimes you can look at the landscape and say, we're going to need it soon. We're going to need it. Our Father, thank you that you recorded the events of Mordecai. You recorded the events of a Joseph and of a Daniel and the three Hebrew children and the apostles and the disciples and the early Christian martyrs all the way up even into our own time. People that had conviction. Conviction. I think they would be astonished today. I think they may sit down and weep today of what we give into. God, would you help us? Would you raise up a people in this day?
that would have great conviction to just live by the Word of God. Father, to live by what you say. To live according to your will and not the will of this world. God, would you help us? Would you help us? We thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. The instrument's playing. Why don't you spend some time with the Lord tonight? Right where you are, maybe spend some time with the Lord. Maybe the Holy Spirit of God has been pointing something out in your life. And he says, you know, a little compromise right here. Compromise. It's not something I want in your life. It's not something there. Maybe some of you are looking over your life right now. And you see some areas of your life that you really do need a little more backbone. You've given in too long and too far. We stand tonight and we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Amen. Have a good week this week. May God help you and challenge you. May God change us as we'd allow Him to change us. And where change needs to be. That's point, listen, friend, that's the point of preaching to bring about change in our life. That's one of the points of it. And may God help us. As, uh, as he attempts to make those changes in our life. All right. Brother Jim, would you close us in a word of prayer tonight?